You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lecture 3, the preface of Veritatis Splendor. As you notice in the copy that you may be using, I've got one here from the Daughters of St. Paul, but you can easily get it online. There are numbered paragraphs, and so no matter what edition you are using, the paragraph numbers stay the same. It's a very handy way of making sure we know what we're talking about, which text, no matter what edition of Veritatis Splendor we're using. Here I'm in the preface, so it's paragraphs numbers 1 to 5. The name of encyclicals come from their opening words, and in this particular case, the name Veritatis Splendor splendor of the truth, comes from that opening sentence. Let me read it to you. The splendor of truth shines forth in the works of the Creator, and, in a special way, in man, created in the image and likeness of God. Truth enlightens man's intelligence and shapes his freedom, leading him to know and to love the Lord. Hence the psalmist prays, let the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. That's a quotation from Psalm 4, verse 6. There, in that opening gambit, we find some of the great themes. First, that there is a splendor to truth. When we think about that, we are acknowledging that even in human conversation, let alone in divine conversation, that there's something illuminating about the truth. That whether we've worked hard to try to discover something on our own, or whether we plumbed the text of scriptures and have finally understood what they meant, or in any other case, there is something of splendor of truth. That is, the words are about things, and the things, through the words, shine forth with a light that illumines the mind who considers them. I myself think of this as part of just the wonderful aspect of the being a teacher, because I'm reading great books from the course of the history of human thought, and thinking about the meanings and about what the realities that they are trying to describe are, and then talking about them with people like yourselves here uh, in class or in these particular lectures for the Catholic, uh, International Catholic University. And I'm so mindful of what we talk about with these words can show forth a truth about the reality that really is splendid. Pope John Paul II, in saying so, is focusing on the way in which the author of our nature, God, made us human beings and made us specifically in his image and according to his likeness. There's a bit of theological background there that we should ponder. When we think of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, even before the creation of the world, before the beginning of time, when we think just about the Trinity, the Father is the first and originary source and from all eternity, he gives himself entirely to the Son. And the Son freely receives what the Father has given. It is for this reason that one can think of the Son as the Word of the Father, and also as the very image of the Father. For he has received everything that the Father has given, and freely accepted it, and freely embraced it. The Spirit is the love that proceeds forth from them, and the delight that is taken in the perfect giving by the Father to the Son, and the perfect receiving by the Son of what the Father has given. So we think of the Spirit as what is breathed forth. Well, here I simply want to focus on that second element. The Son, the Word of God, from all eternity, 
is the perfect image of his father. According to Genesis 3.26, which the Pope is citing here in that opening line in which he gives the name of this encyclical, he is citing the truth that we are made in the image and according to the likeness. One of the great problems of Christian theology is understanding what happened. We think of the fall, especially, that is described in Genesis. And in the fall, not only was there an actual sin by Adam and Eve, but that had consequences for the rest of us. There were a significance of the fall for all subsequent human generations. And how we describe that in the course of Christian theology is often linked very carefully to that notion of we are made in the image and likeness of God, but something about the image in which we are made, Christ, is there to show us how we ought to be, because we, made in the image, have been damaged. We have been wounded. We have in some way become disordered. One can think about this structurally and talk, as this Council of Trent likes to do, about the fact that our intellects have been darkened, our wills have been weakened, our very desires have sometimes become distorted. There's a real damage there. And the, the fact that the likeness has been damaged refers especially to the way in which we act and we fail to act really in the likeness of the God in whom we're made. Instead of acting with the generosity of the Father, we tend to act in a way that's selfish, that loves only what strikes us as good and love-worthy. Instead of loving in the receptive way in which the Son does, we tend to have a kind of a psychic inversion. And we fear that if we would only give what is love-worthy, we very much fear that we will only be loved if we appear love-worthy. And so sometimes we'll manipulate, sometimes we'll simply despair, thinking ourselves unworthy and unable to become so. And instead of having that delight of the Holy Spirit, a delight in which we are relishing the beauty of the giving and the receiving, we tend to be envious and jealous. Dealing with the consequences of the fall is an enormous part of Christian moral theology. And Pope John Paul II is like that here, suggesting that we were made in God's image and likeness, and that God so loved us that he wanted to restore us to that image and likeness, but that the difficulties that we encounter are those difficulties that come from the fall and from the subsequent um, history of human sinfulness and the way in which the wounds have been perpetuated and sometimes deepened. Now, in reflecting on that opening line and on the preface as a whole, here's the main point that I want to stress and the thesis I want to argue. In fundamental moral theology, like in most forms of ethics, there is a relationship between the kind of ethics we offer and the vision of human nature on which it's based and our general metaphysical assumptions about the world. Let me do this in a brief compass and just do a little comparing, and I think it'll make all the more obvious what the text is saying. When we think of Christian moral theology, we say, well, clearly the ethics is the ethics of the commandments given to God by God to Moses. It's the ethics of the two new commandments that Christ gives that in a way summarize and bring out the significance of the set of ten when Jesus gives the commandment, love the Lord your God with all your mind and heart and soul and strength. In a way, he's summarizing the first three, ta the first three commandments of the first tablet of the Decalogue. Likewise, when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, 
There is a way in which he's summarizing the second tablet, that is the fourth, fifth, sixth, all the way through the tenth of the commandments that Moses received from God. And then Jesus unpacks them for us, especially in the Sermon on the Mount that is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew from chapter 5 to chapter 8. What Christ is doing is explaining the significance of the original commandments, especially in light of the commandments of love that he has given. The nature of Christian ethics depends in many ways on the Christian vision of anthropology, the Christian vision of what a human person is. Deep within the vision of Christian anthropology is the notion every single person is made in the image and likeness of God. Every single human person <clears throat> is quite different from any other type of creature in the world. And this is all based on yet a deeper set of commitments in metaphysics, namely the commitment to the fact that God is eternally, we exist in time. God is the creator and we are the creatures. God is purely spiritual, but the creation he made has limited spiritual beings like angels, beings like us who have both a material and a spiritual component, other living things, inorganic things, the whole vast stretch of the universe. It's a metaphysics in which we think about there being a, a first being that is God, purely spiritual, all the way down to the most simple of the inorganic beings. That kind of metaphysics makes it possible for us to talk about this vision of the person, makes it possible to talk about the nature of ethics. In the course of Veritatis Splendor, John Paul II will be laying out that threefold vision very clearly, but he is also quite mindful, teacher of ethics that he was for so many decades before he assumed the papal office, a teacher in Krakow, a teacher in Lublin, frequently a writer on this matter, he is so aware that other forms of ethics also have commitments in this way, ethics, anthropology, and metaphysics, but they're very different commitments. Let me offer just two easy ones by way of comparison. We'll need them as we go forward in the course of our study of Veritatis Splendor. Let me take the utilitarian vision. This is associated especially with John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham before him, and with many thinkers in our own time. The ethics of utilitarianism is the ethics that proceeds in this fashion, the principle of utility. How can we maximize a course of action and a situation that it will bring greater benefit rather than burden, greater pleasure, minimal pain? It's not just a raw hedonism, I realize that, but it's always focused on the maximization of pleasure and benefit, the minimization of pain and of disadvantage. There's an enormously sophisticated account of how you reconcile all these competing values within the more sophisticated versions of utilitarianism. But notice how that particular vision of ethics, the relative calculation of values, depends upon a certain vision of the human person. The vision of the human person that utilitarians tend to offer is that we are pleasure-seeking, pain-avoiding animals who have a reason but it's not quite the reason that Christian culture was describing. It's rather that we have the power of reason so that we can calculate what course of action is likely to be more beneficial and which type is likely to be more burdensome, which is typer to bring longer lasting or more intense or higher quality pleasures, and which course of action is likely to bring more severe pain 
or more long-lasting pain or more intense pain. And the effort to calculate these various possible situations and courses of action, this is what human intelligence consists in. Reason is not particularly envisioned as looking upward to the beauties of God or to the truths of the moral order. There are no such truths of a higher moral order. There is no God. Rather, the calculative intelligence of the human person, according to the utilitarian, is simply a far more sophisticated type of organ or faculty or power than any of the other animals have. We're able to control and dominate the resources of the earth far more powerfully, far more systematically, and far more effectively than any other animal can do in the course of that animal's interactions with, with, with its environment. It's a very different picture of the person, and it rests upon a very different picture of metaphysics. As far as I know, all the utilitarians are materialists. Very unusual to find anyone who has anything other than a firm belief that the only reality in the whole universe is a material reality. When I teach metaphysics uh, back at Fordham, what I like to do is to make a distinction between a methodological materialism and a metaphysical materialism. A methodological materialism is simply saying that within a given area or domain of life, I'm only going to look for material explanations. For instance, if I'm a blood chemist, the only thing I really want to know about are the particular combinations of chemicals within the blood, and I'm not going to be particularly looking for any spiritual explanation. Or if I'm doing something in the order of, let's say, the physics of rockets or any kind of kinetics, I'm simply going to be looking for explanations at the appropriate physical level. In fact, the technology that we use to record these lectures, if something were to go wrong with the camera or to go wrong with the lights or to go wrong with the audio, we would look for a physical explanation. This is a proper and healthy use of a methodological materialism. On the other hand, a metaphysical materialism, which I think is associated with the utilitarians, is a denial that there is any such things as spiritual reality. Denying that there really is a God, denying that there are angels, and denying that there is a really spiritual component to the unity that is the human person, a soul that lives after death, a soul that will be reunited with a body at the resurrection. These things which are so important and crucial to a Christian metaphysics are simply denied by a materialist or utilitarian metaphysics. You see the connection between the type of ethics, the type of vision of the person, the type of vision of the cosmos. Let me turn to one other example. We'll need it as we go forward with Veritatis Splendor, but it's interesting to think along these lines and just to understand certain visions of philosophical ethics in terms of the schema of the relation between ethics, the vision of the person, and the vision of reality. That third example that I wanted to use is the example of Kantianism. Immanuel Kant, very important thinker of the Enlightenment, absolutely fascinating thinker, very, very challenging, and absolutely first-rate <coughs> in his efforts to think through a problem from his own perspective. Immanuel Kant offers a version of ethics that is usually called deontological. It comes from a Greek word, deon, which means necessary or duty. And Kant's ethics is primarily an ethics of duty, by contrast to utilitarianism, which is an ethics of calculating the relative value of things insofar as they will promote pleasure or advantage, and in which we will reduce disadvantage or reduce pain. 
Kant's, Kant's deontological ethics focuses in on the duties that are involved in morality. But what Kant holds, as a thinker of the Enlightenment, as indeed one of its major theoreticians, he thinks of the human person as primarily a mind, as primarily a reason, that is, a person who is so marked by his rational faculty that he's able to think through how to maximize, how really to increase, how really to enhance his freedom, because freedom and reason give dignity. I said in the first lecture we were going to have to concern ourselves with dignity. Here's one of the ways in which we have to do it. Immanuel Kant and his whole deontological project, and the many individuals who take up a somewhat Kantian or deontological form of ethics, they would prize as the most important part of ethical thinking. How can I enhance? How can I defend? How can I enact? How can I establish human freedom? How can I make myself a really autonomous agent? Well, the only way to be autonomous, the only way to be really truly free for Kant, is to make an ethics in which we have to impose the laws on ourselves. At the heart of Kantian ethics is something called the categorical imperative. We'll see it later, we'll study it more. But the idea here, at the center of Kantian ethics, is that if we're thinking about making a rule, a moral rule, of any sort, what we must do is to propose it in the form of a rule, and then we must be sure that it can be universalized. In order for it to be reasonable, I must impose it on myself in the following way. If I want to give a moral rule that requires that people exert themselves to respect a certain duty, I must also put myself under the ban of that duty. For instance, I might want to say, lying is something that's bad. I wouldn't want to be told a lie. So I'll propose as the maxim for my ethics, lies may never be told. Well, it's easy to say to somebody else, you shall never tell a lie. But the only way that I can universalize it, including myself within the scope of that universality, is also to make myself bound by that same law. If I impose it as a law on everyone else, then I must impose it as a law on myself. But there's no problem with a free agent imposing a law upon himself or herself. This is precisely why that agent is autonomous, that agent is free. Likewise, if I want to give myself a certain permission, perhaps the permission to say what I like in the political arena, or the permission simply to speak freely and to associate freely, that's a perfectly legitimate liberty to take. But if I give myself the liberty, I must give it to everyone else. Hence, at the heart of Kantian ethics is the notion of the categorical imperative. Whatever imperative I'm inclined to give, either a duty or, in this case, a permission, I must universalize it. I must say it without any other categorization, but simply let it apply across the board. That's Kantian ethics. In a way, it's like the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Or maybe, to be more strictly accurate, maybe it's like the silver rule. Don't do unto others what you don't want them to do unto you. It's pretty different from the Wall Street version of it, do unto others before they do unto you. The idea here is, is that this golden rule that's in the Bible, Kant takes it up and makes it the principle of morality. But he does so because of the way in which he envisions the human person. 
He doesn't really think that it's possible to know with complete accuracy the nature of anything. He doesn't think that it's strictly possible to know God or know God's will. And so instead, the picture of the person that he has is the person as self-legislating. If a person allows something else to legislate for him, that person won't be free and won't be autonomous. If, for instance, a person is too religious, if he's taking all his orders from God or from the church, Kant would regard that as someone who is not autonomous, not really free, not really a person in his sense of the word. Or if one were to say, it's somehow in human nature, in the nature of things that we find morality, Kant would regard that as somehow heteronymous. He would not think that you can find morality within the human nature, within its bodily or spiritual dimensions. The vision here that Kant is given is that the human person must be self-legislating, and it comes from a kind of metaphysics, or shall I say, a denial of metaphysics. For Kant is known throughout his works as giving a strong critique of any of the traditional visions of metaphysics, and insisting that all we have is the phenomenal order, the way in which we things appear to us, and that we can't ever know things in themselves. Let me pull back now a little bit and get back to the preface to Veritatis Splendor. My contention is, is that in the preface, Pope John Paul II, very mindful of these trends in contemporary ethics, trends of utilitarianism, sometimes even within the church, within moral theology, under the name of proportionalism and consequentialism. We'll see more about those terms in future lectures. Sometimes utilitarianism is at work. Likewise, he is very mindful. In fact, he's very indebted to Kantianism. His earlier book, from before his days as the Pope, Love and Responsibility, makes a very, very interesting use of Kantian deontology. If you've ever read Love and Responsibility, you will remember at the heart of it is his somewhat Kantian way of giving the basic moral norm with regard to sexuality and marriage and friendship. He says in Love and Responsibility, never use the other person merely as a means, but always and everywhere, always treat the other person as an end in himself. That's practically a parallel to the Kantian version of the categorical imperative. But even though he's mindful of utilitarianism and of Kantianism and of many other theories of ethics as well, in Veritatis Splendor, he is above all mindful of the Christian version, namely that what Christian ethics is, especially as it's revealed, is based on a revealed vision of the human person, image and likeness of God, and based on a certain understanding about how God is eternal spirit and the creator of all that is, and that we creatures have a nature and a nature that has been made by God and designed by God, and therefore a truth that can be known about it. Our reasons are not merely instruments for the calculation of benefit and burden, or for the division and the devising of means of universalizing an imperative, our reasons are, meth are powers by which we can understand the nature of things and rule ourselves by a very different understanding of freedom, one that is largely understood in terms of self-government, one that is understood in terms of ordered liberty rather than a pure license. It is no surprise that John Paul II, in the opening preface, the opening paragraphs of Veritatis Splendor, speaks so often about the truth about man that is disclosed to us in Jesus Christ. He is hearkening back here to 
the work that he did in his very first encyclical, the one that announced the program of his papacy, namely Redemptor Hominis. There he is saying, and here he repeats in the preface to Veritatis Splendor, that the fundamental questions about ethics can only be understood well when we grasp human nature, when we grasp the truths about man, and that while we can understand a certain number of these truths by our own reason, by the use of good, sound philosophizing based on a sturdy intelligence of what human nature is in its many dimensions, it is something on which the light of Christ must shine because of the darkening of the human intellect and sometimes the dissipation of the passions that can influence us, what we have to do is to go back to Christ to see what the truth about man is. In this opening gambit, in the five paragraphs that begin Veritatis Splendor as a preface, we find him rather intensely focused on both natural law reasoning, but then especially on the truths of revelation. For instance, he quotes John chapter 14, verse 6, Christ is the way and the truth and the life. Consequently, the decisive answer to every one of man's questions, his religious and moral questions in particular, is given by Jesus Christ, or rather is Jesus Christ himself. This will be something that will be especially available to the believer who is given to meditate on the person of Jesus, and especially the believer who is in a personal relationship with Jesus who will, by virtue of really living in Christ, experience some of the effects of living and growing according to the pattern, so that what is imperfect in the believer can be made perfect, and that what is in some way sinful can be sanctified, and what is in some way incomplete can be completed. But in addition to its significance for a believer, part of what John Paul II is going to be arguing in the course of the whole of Veritatis Splendor, he tells us here in the preface, It's about humanity in general, because he thinks that the questions that a figure like the rich young man comes up with are not just the questions of one man. They are the questions of all humanity, that we all want to know about how you do what you need to do, how you observe moral obligation in life, and what more to life there is. Is there eternal life? Or is this life all there is? And that all of those questions, which are placed in the mouth of the young man in the gospel text according to St. Matthew, are really questions that all of us have and that all humanity has. One can see this in some of the most interesting places. When I think of Mahatma Gandhi over in India, even though he was not a Christian, he had enormous respect for the person of Christ. And part of what he called forth, both in his campaign of nonviolence, but also in his quote, in his quest for real altruism, for a sense of solidarity with the poor and with the downtrodden and with those members of the untouchable caste, he admits in his writings that he found so much of influence from the person of Jesus Christ. And so even though he is not a believer, nonetheless, he finds in the person of Jesus something that discloses something to him about all humanity. Now, in saying all this, part of what John Paul II will have to do is to construct parallel lines of argument. And so what you find here in the course of the preface is his own giving us an indication of how to read this encyclical and how in particular to understand the patterns and then how to be ready to disclose them. What I find is that it's very helpful in the study of this preface and then throughout the encyclical to be taking note of when he is using premises of revelation. That is, 
is this true because the Bible says so? Well, we know it to be true because the Bible says so. That's one type of argument. It's also a way in which one can show how the scriptures cast light on something that we really ought to look at, but perhaps hadn't thought to look at. But there will need to be a second line of argument. That is, what the human reason, reflecting on human nature, can see. And that sometimes what one can provide in the course of moral argumentation is a form of argument which is very cogent and compelling to anybody. One thinks, for instance, of the way in which one treats things about justice. In any secular conversation on the subject, people always understand that justice does somehow involve giving to another what is due or fair. We may have very intricate discussions and debates about what is it that is due or what is it that is fair, but I submit to you that any four-year-old, when presented with a pizza for lunch and the opportunity of his brother and himself to have at this pizza, the smart parent will in every case know you let one cut and you let the other choose. You will never find such fairness and exactitude in the cutting of a pizza without anybody ever having to tell him. One can make an argument about what's due and what's fair as being at the heart and the soul of justice. And yet that justice, as we know, can't be the whole of it, for there will be people unable to function unable to assert themselves in a conversation, disadvantaged because of some uh, defect or perhaps because of some injury or some illness. And there is a need for human solidarity and a need for charity. There is a need to understand, in a way, the hierarchy of demands. For the demands of justice are stern. The demands of justice are rigorous. The demands of justice can be known, I suspect, even without being of the household of the faith. But on the other hand, the solidarity we have with others, especially those who cannot speak for themselves, these are part of the demands of charity. And the obligations of charity, I think, are higher. The obligations of charity are, in fact, more severe. The obligations of charity are more wide-ranging. One will see in the course of the discussion that is engaged in the rest of Veritatis Splendor, Pope John Paul II engaging these themes that are mentioned in the preface. In our next lecture, we'll turn to the very first chapter and start our look at Scripture in all of its senses and try to appreciate what he has to say here about the demands of morality. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.